Good afternoon. It's good to be with you all. Uh, I'm going to do the old-fashioned thing. I bring greetings from Church of the Redeemer over across the park, right? Just a little way. We're in Tower Grove East there and really excited. Uh, since day one uh, of meeting uh, Josh and hearing his vision for planting a church here in St. Louis, pre-pandemic that turned into planting a church in the middle of a pandemic, we, we've, been, we've been kindred in the midst of that. Um, and I have a wife of almost 17 years. I've got two kids, a, a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. Uh, we love St. Louis. We love the Cardinals. And, and just baseball in general. And uh, I get the privilege of being lead pastor of Church of the Redeemer. Uh, just a, a, a crazy story. We moved here in 2009 to plant uh, August Gate Church with two of our other friends. And then the last couple of years, the Lord has transitioned us out to a, of a multi-site church into a, a couple of autonomous churches. And Church of the Redeemer is one of those. And then we are thankful for our partnership because the, the dream that, that led us here uh, to St. Louis, uh, what, 14 years ago or so, 13, 14 years ago, was to see St. Louis littered with gospel-centered churches. And uh, so like storyline, you guys are a dream come true. You're, you're part of that. And we, we know we still have a lot of work to do. And Lord willing, uh, we want to continue to give our life here to the city of St. Louis. Well, if you haven't already, go ahead and, and turn in your, your Bibles to, or your devices to Revelation chapter one. We're going to be in there. Um, and you're like, who the heck is this guy coming in preaching for the first time? We're going Revelation, Jesus, sword in his, uh, sword in his mouth, seven lampstands, all that kind of stuff. Can I, can I just tell you, like, Revelation is not as scary as you think it is. Um, uh, we, we spend a lot of time at Church of the Redeemer in, in the epistles of John, and they help me understand Revelation a lot better and, and understanding his heart and all that kind of stuff. But we're going to look at, at, at the Apostle John, who's the elder statesman of the church. He's the last uh, living apostle. We're, we're going to see his vision of the resurrected, glorified Jesus in Revelation chapters 1 through 5. So we're going to cover some ground this evening. And in this book of Revelation, the Apostle John is writing to encourage seven churches that he oversees in Asia Minor. He lists those out already. They're the churches that he, he mainly wrote the epistles to in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But, but John here, he's simply letting him know, he's letting him know that Jesus rules and reigns even in the midst of the chaos, trials, and tribulations that they are beginning to face and that they will face. It's, it's, it's written to be a reminder that Jesus wins. Like no matter what, no matter what comes, no matter what happens, like Jesus is king, he, he's ruler and he's reigner. It's a present reality as well as a, a future reality. And that's why it's important for us today, y'all. It's a reminder that the one who rose victorious from the grave over 2,000 years ago is still victorious today and, and will be victorious forever. So with all that in mind, let's pray. And then we're gonna dive in. Pray with me. God of life, you raised Jesus from the dead and your spirit inspired the prophets and writers of scripture and even tonight your spirit draws us to Christ and helps us to acknowledge him as Lord. We ask that you will send the Holy Spirit now to, to convict us, to encourage us, to fill us with faith and hope through the proclamation of your word. Father, what we do not know, teach us and what we have not, give us but we are not kindly make us for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. amen. As we begin, I want you to think about an encounter that you had with something uh, that, that's larger than life, maybe literally or figuratively, so, something that you can remember as breathtaking or, or maybe even a little overwhelming. I've got a lot of these examples, I think, but like last March, my wife and I had the, the amazing opportunity, uh, I had the opportunity to officiate a wedding in Utah. 
And um, we, we uh, never, I'd never been that, that far west in a, in a concentrated amount of time. I'd flown through, I've been to California, but never to, to the mountains in the west. For, this was my first time like really close. I'd flown in like Phoenix airport and seen mountains around and, and all that kind of stuff, but really the first time being close to mountains. You always hear people talk about mountains, how breathtaking they are. And they're always beautiful to see from a distance or really something to, to admire, something snow-capped and just awe-inspiring about them. But, but there's something about them when you get closer, when, when you really see the magnitude of them as you begin to drive up through them. Like we drove up the mountainside in our little rental uh, Ford or uh, uh, Honda Element, right? And, and, and like we struggled to get up the mountain a few times. The mountain was big. It was rocky. Man, I, I think about, I grew up in Texas and I think about going to the Texas State Fair for the first time and seeing big techs, right? Howdy, y'all, like the huge, bigger than life. I think about one of my top uh, three concert experiences of seeing U2 play at Bush Stadium back in 2011, bigger than life, right? These things that, that just make you feel small. That they, they bring a combination of, of, of seeing them from afar, but seeing them up close and experiencing things like you've never experienced them before, they can often be overwhelming. And friends, I think today that we need to confess that we often find Jesus underwhelming. That we walk into these situations and see mountains and see attractions and see concerts or celebrities or experiences and we're overwhelmed and we're in awe. But we come to, to church week after week, we come to community group or discipleship group and we leave often feeling underwhelmed by Christ. And if we're being honest tonight, we would recognize that all, capital A-L-L, right here in my notes, all of our problems stem from a small vision of Jesus. A vision that, that doesn't see him for who he is as the risen, reigning, and ruling king right now, back then, and forever. And so today, we, we need to understand that we have a sight problem. And the only correction for it is to look at Jesus and to keep looking at Jesus, to see Jesus, to, to, to maybe even be terrified and in awe of Jesus here in Revelation 1 through 5 a little bit, to understand what it means. And today, today's a really good day, as is every day, to have our vision corrected, to continue to look at Jesus, or even to, to begin to see him for the first time. And so tonight we're going to see that we need a bigger vision of the permanence of Jesus, the payment of Jesus and the power of Jesus. But he, our big idea, and you can throw it up there on the screen, is just this. It's just really simple. I'm a simple guy. We need a bigger vision of Jesus. We, like, like we need to see him and to continue seeing him. That's our hope as we walk through this tonight. So first, we need a bigger vision of the permanence of Jesus. We need a bigger vision of the permanence of Jesus. Let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 in 18, it says this, the apostle John continuing to write, continuing the passage that Pastor Josh just read. Verse 17 says, when I saw him, being Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So what do these texts show us about the permanence of Jesus? 
Well, Jesus is very clear that his permanence is all-encompassing. He says that he is the first and the last. He's, he's a member of the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the beginning of Revelation 1, God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. So it's the, the A and the Z and everything in between. Jesus says that he is the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. He's the Almighty. And he says he is the living one. Jesus is reminding John and he's reminding us that he is the total sum of all who is. Colossians 1 captures this in Paul's beautiful hymn. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He holds all things together physically and by the word of his mouth. He is everything. And I think that we become cynical of saying those things sometimes. Why? Because we often forget the permanence of Jesus. And when we cease to see Jesus as the infinite God, our vision becomes weak. Sin, struggles, trials, sickness, weariness, they all contribute to shrinking our vision of a permanent, eternal Jesus. See, I don't think we sit around often enough and think about what, what Jesus is really saying I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm now alive forever and ever. He's permanent. He's never not been, and he always will be. Look again closely what he says in verse 17. John's obviously freaking out. He says, I fell at his feet like a dead man, right? Uh, uh, you know what, the, in, in the Greek, that means he fainted, right? Uh, like, we could all put that together. What does Jesus say? He says, don't be afraid. He puts a hand on his shoulder to comfort him and says, don't be afraid. You see, friends, Jesus desires for us to take comfort in the truth that he is the eternal one. When you're losing hope, you need to hear and receive the good news that Jesus has always been and will always be there. He is the constant amid the most personal struggle or the largest global conflict. Jesus is there. His presence is a comfort. His presence is a refuge for those who trust in him. And our vision is corrected when we see how big Jesus is in time, space, and reason. You know, many things in this life claim to be permanent but aren't. You guys know that permanent markers actually fade? Except maybe when they're on your kid's skin, right? Uh, but, but like, you know, how many times have we written names on water bottles and, and all this kind of stuff and, and they fade? I mean, I, I, uh, I don't know if you can tell it about me. I love tattoos, but you know, my tattoos are going to decompose them. That's morbid, right? But my, my tattoos are going to decompose on my body one day. Like they're not as permanent as your grandma says they are. Um, but, but like, like they're, they're going to, they're going to go away someday. Earthly love wanes and dies. Y'all, Rose let Jack slip off the stuff in Titanic. She said she loved him, but she let the boy drown. Right, it wasn't a permanent love until she was uncomfortable. By the way, another one of our preachers mentioned the Titanic in his sermons. I don't know, maybe it was a cultural thing at our church. Uh, he mentioned that this morning. But, but things that, that claim to be permanent in this life, they aren't. And I think this is why it's so hard for us to grasp the permanence of Jesus. We, 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 we see everything fading. I, in the last 13, 14 years, I've had lots of friends come and go as we've sought to do this work that God's called us to do in St. Louis. It's not permanent. 
But Jesus, if, if we'll just look to him for a moment, if we'll just see, if we'll just grasp his glory, we'll see that he has and will always exist to draw sinners unto himself so that they might have right standing before God. And, and friends, this is good news to our weary hearts today. No, no, no matter what's pressing down upon you, you need to hear today that Jesus' permanent presence is a saving presence. He isn't there just to be there. He's there to do something. And if Jesus is eternal, if he's truly permanent, then we can put our hope in him no matter what has happened, what is happening, or what will happen, things that we don't even know yet. And friends, when we focus on the eternal, always present nature of Jesus, this should increase our attention uh, to him and our affection for him. You see, Jesus' permanence is cause for us to look to him and to love him more and more as time goes on. So today, if you find yourself lost and alone, if you find yourself confused or hurt or angry or weary, it's, it's, it's simple, but it's not simplistic. It's simple. Can I just encourage you, if you find yourself in that place, look to Jesus. If you find yourself in a place where you're joyful and you're, you're celebrating and you're experiencing countless blessings, can I tell you, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus in the scriptures and be reminded of who he is and what he's done for you. Look, look to the cross and see the great love that he has for you. Look, look to Jesus amongst his people, the church. You see, the church is the place where we all seek to, to love and to know and to obey Jesus together. It's, it's the place in, in this time where Jesus should be clearly seen in this world. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you look to Jesus. See, Jesus told us it was actually better for him to go away so the Spirit would come and to be our helper and to guide us and to, and to point us back to him. So, friend, today, if you're struggling, you're struggling to recognize the permanence of Jesus, cry out to the Spirit. Go to the Scripture. Be amongst the people and have sight and see Christ. We have no reason to be afraid of the all-encompassing permanence of Jesus. Family, we can find comfort in the eternal one today. We certainly need a bigger vision of the permanence of Jesus. Next, we need a bigger vision of the payment of Jesus. A bigger vision of the payment of Jesus. We have a couple places here, Revelation 1 and Revelation 5. The second half of, of Revelation 1 verse 5 begins like this. It says, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Roll on over to Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. The Apostle John writes this, Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God, sent into all the earth. Friends, tonight we see that the book of Revelation often refers to Jesus as the lamb who was slain or the lamb who was slaughtered. In verse 5 of chapter 5, Jesus is first called the lion from the tribe of Judah, the, the, the root of David. And what's that, what, what that's doing is it, it's showing us that he was the one who was promised to, to come to God's promised people and save them. So, so he's, he's referred to as a lion. He's referred to as being in the lineage of a king. 
But, but check this out. After, after that, Jesus is referred to as the lamb. He's referred to as, even in, in, in Revelation 5, uh, uh, John says, I heard about the lion. I heard about the seed of David. But when I look, I saw a lamb. Someone that looked like a slaughtered lamb. We, sh- we should take note of this. It's important. Jesus could have been spoken of with power and prestige. And that would have been correct. But instead, he is referred to in the terms of, of sacrifice. He's referred to in the terms of slaughter. The songs that are sung to him in chapter five are sung to him because he was the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was slaughtered. Maybe we talk about it so much that we just bypass it, but we must remember, Christians, that we are people of the cross. Everything that we say, everything we do, and everything we believe all hinges on the cross of Christ. This is because of what Jesus' death did for us. It it, it made a way for us when there wasn't one. It gave us access to a holy God. You see, in light of God's perfect creation, our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. And because of that, all who came after them were guilty of sin by nature and by choice. But you see, even even then, even after that horrific fall, that, that, that cosmic treason, God made a promise from the beginning. And he kept echoing that promise throughout history that he would send one to make what was wrong right. This was Jesus. It always was, always is, and always will be Jesus. And Jesus came to earth fully God and fully man. And he lived a perfect life for you and for me. And he was given up as the lamb to be slaughtered for our sins. Why? Well, he did this so that all who would trust in his death and believe in his resurrection through the confession of their mouths and the direction of their lives would be saved. They would, they would be shielded. They would be taken out of the path of wrath. And this is why we can join with the multitude in the book of Revelation and cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength. It's because of the payment Christ made. But friends, the problem that we all have is that we we look to other things to save us. I'm guilty of this all the time. I, I forget that the cross continually tells me that Jesus finished the work necessary for my salvation. But I, I look at the cross, but I say, but. I, I remember the, the words, it is finished, but I say, yeah, there, there's, there's gotta be something else. I forget that Christ's payment for our sins was once and for all. And it calls us to look again and again to the cross. And be reminded that there is no one else who can save but Jesus. There is nothing else that can satisfy. There's nothing else that can redeem. There's nothing else that can can regenerate us from, from death to life. It's the cross. It's Christ. It's his blood. Friends, you have to understand we are all positionally in a place where we can, cannot pay the biggest debt owed. The, the, the debt of our lives for being rebellious to a holy God. I may have said a debt that you owed and you're thinking about student loan debt, right? You're, you're thinking about a mortgage. You're thinking about a couple car payments. Can I tell you that there is a way more infinite debt of the price for, for being rebellious towards a holy God? <clears throat> and you can't pay that price. But there is one who has done 
There's one who has completed the payment. There's one who has gone in our place. Our perfect brother stepped in and gave his life so that we might live. Jesus, the lamb who was slaughtered, who was slain before the foundations of the world. But this payment, it, it calls for a response. So the question I want to put in front of you this evening is are you going to repent and believe that Jesus is the payment for your sin? Or are you gonna keep on believing that Jesus is the payment for your sin? Or are you going to reject and rebel and keep on rebelling? You see, calls for response. There, there, there isn't any neutral in this life. Maybe it says it on your car, on the, on the gear shift, but there is no neutral in this life. Either we are repenting and believing because we've been given sight after believing and confessing the goodness of Jesus, or there's rejecting and rebelling, and we continue to live in death. The response for those who are and who will follow Jesus is to never stop looking at the cross, to, to never stop being thankful for the payment. Amid your sin, look to the cross. When others sin against you, look to the cross. When the attacks of Satan are too much to bear, you look to the cross. When the pressures of this world are overwhelming, look to the cross. Friends, we must fix our eyes on the cross of Christ and never, ever move them from there. I, I know that Storyline desires to be a church that's, that's about community, but that's about relationship. Can I tell you one of the keys to, to, to relationships in the church? is that we're actually supposed to spur one another on to, to not quit looking at the cross, to, to not quit seeing that Christ is, is the perfect payment for our sin. So, so when your brother or sister is, is in that, that, that repetition of being down on themselves and, and, and condemning themselves for past sin, you get to look at them and say, do you believe, Romans 8, 1, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Let's look to the cross. When, when, when that brother or that sister comes to you and, and they're, they're weeping because of the brokenness of their own life or the brokenness of their family or, or the brokenness uh, in their job or just the brokenness in their world, uh, a pandemic and, and wars, social injustice, you get to look at them and say, look to the cross. Christ, pay. See, see, we don't just say that Jesus or the cross or the gospel, the good news is the answer like a Band-Aid. We say it and we keep saying it and we keep believing it, seeing it applied to every one of those situations in our life. When you're walking through de depression and you're so anxious that you can't move, you need people to come along you and say, brother, sister, look to the cross. Trust Christ. The payment has been made. Let's, let's take one step forward together with our eyes on the cross. Family, we can't move past it. It's not something that we ever get over. We don't graduate from being in awe. We, we, don't, we don't graduate from, from singing the songs that they sing Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And you know what the response to that song was? Amen. Amen. They said, let it be. We're, we're gonna be singing about the fact that Jesus was the lamb who was slaughtered for eternity. Why not get a start now 
And not just personally, but communally. It's one of the reasons that we come to gather every Sunday. Why the, the gospel is at the center of our services is because you and I forget the payment. We celebrate Good Friday once a year, right? We, we have, we, we're, we're reminded every Sunday, but can I tell you, Monday through Saturday, multiple times, I forget in the payment of Jesus. We have to have a bigger vision of the payment of Jesus. We have to see him as the lamb who was slaughtered. We have to see that he is worthy because of that. Finally, we need a bigger vision of the power of Jesus. A bigger vision of the power of Jesus. Let's, let's revisit again what verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1 say. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the son of man. Okay, the, the, these lampstands are churches, Okay. Uh, we'll just do a little interpretation right here. There's, it's nothing crazy. He's going to tell you what they are here in a minute. They're lampstands. Remember, this is a vision John is having. He's on the island of Patmos. He's, he's, been, he's been exiled because he's been fighting for Jesus. He's been fighting to have the gospel central, and there's a bunch of people who don't want that to happen. So Jesus gives him this vision. And Jesus is, is, is walking amongst these lampstands. He's walking amongst his church. One like the Son of Man. Harkening back to Daniel, where we see Christ in, 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 the, in, the, in the, 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 the fiery furnace, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest, royalty. The hair of his head was white as wool, the lamb white as snow, and his eyes like fiery flame. His feet were like bronze, as his, and his fired in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of cascading waters. Have you been to a waterfall? Have you ever been to uh, the Atlantic Ocean, especially in the Northeast? That was one of the craziest things I've ever experienced in my life. Like, the, 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 it's not a place you go to have a nice day at the beach. The waves are just crashing again and again and again. It's just a constant roar. John says in verse 16, he had seven stars in his right hand, which we're going to see are pastors. These churches and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, the truth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Before we even get into this, maybe if you're struggling with a, a vision of the power of Jesus, you just need to camp out in Revelation chapter one for the next week and see who it is who, who we call king and see who it is that we call savior. It's an amazing thing. What does our text say about the power of Jesus? Well, we see that the power of Jesus, at least in three ways here in Revelation 1 through 5. We see the power of Jesus in his word. We see the power of Jesus in his resurrection. And we see the power of Jesus in his return. In Revelation 1.19, Jesus tells John to write about what he has seen and what will take place. And then he begins to give him instructions. These instructions start with seven letters to seven churches, which Josh did a beautiful job of reading in that moment. Because no matter how many times you read biblical names, even as pastors, even as professional Christians, you still get scared about reading them in front of people. 
Just, just as a side note. And I don't know if you've ever really gotten into the, to, to, to the passages there in, in Revelation 2 and 3 and what Jesus has to say to his churches. But he shows his power by the truth of his word. The, the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus rebukes these churches. He shows them where they've been wrong. He corrects them. He shows them where they've been wrong, but, but he leads them what they, to, to what they need to be doing. He, he encourages them. He says, I see your good works. I see what you're doing. I see you standing weary in the midst of persecution, in, in, in the midst of trial, in the midst of struggle. And he teaches them. He reminds them. He shows us that his word is the authority for the church and for all of life. This is the prophet that we hear about all the time. He's, he's the greater Moses. He's the, the, the greater Elijah, the greater Isaiah. All the prophets in the Old Testament point to this moment where Jesus stands among his church and he says these things. Just like a parent would stand amongst their children and in love, rebuke, correct, encourage, and teach. We see Jesus' power through his word. In verse 17 of chapter one, Jesus tells us that he is the living one who was dead, but is now alive. And this shows us his power through his resurrection. We do a little thing at our church. Um, like we don't call it Eastertide, which is the, 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 the church calendar deal. But like for the six weeks after Easter, we keep saying he is risen. He's risen oh, let's do it again. He is risen. And y'all, we just get annoying with it, right? Because it's like, it is one day, but it's one day that leads us into a season to be reminded that he is risen indeed. We serve a resurrected savior, the one who was dead, but who is now his life. You guys know that Jesus is the only person, the only human to stare at death in the face and return alive. That's crazy. That's crazy. The, the, the people in, in, in the gospels, uh, specifically Lazarus, Lazarus and, and, and the little girl who was dead, guess what? They died again. It's kind of a jip, right? Like, I mean, you get to be in the Bible and immortalized in that way a little bit, but like, you die twice? That's kind of a, that's kind of a stinky deal, right? And all these books that we see about this many minutes in heaven, all, we're not going to get into that, but you know what? Those people are going to die. Jesus crucified on our behalf, laid in a borrowed tomb, rose again, never to lay down in the grave ever again. Jesus is the eternal living one. And because he defeated death, he has secured eternal life for those who would surrender to him. You see, by, by his sacrifice, we are saved. And by his resurrection, we will live forever. And not only does his resurrection show us his power over death, but it shows us his reigning power. Because that's what he's doing now. He, he resurrected, he hung out with the homies for like 40 days, and then he took off to heaven where he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And in Revelation chapters four and five, we see a vision of the heavenly throne room, the heavenly court, and we learn that he is doing what he is called to do as he awaits to return to make all things new. And finally, we see Jesus' power in his return. Look at, look at chapter one, verse seven with me. It says, look, 
He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Storyline, one of the many facets of the faith that stirs our hope is that Jesus is going to return and make all things new. That's the beautiful thing. Just go ahead and skip to Revelation 21, 22. Read the end and then read everything backwards. No more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow. All things new. See, see, friends, we, we, we just don't know the end of the story, but we have been given the faith to believe it when we put our trust in Christ. We're, we're not just a bunch of people who are believing in a myth. We're a people who believe in a person who is really coming again. And we will see Jesus' power on full display in the new heavens and the new earth where he will reign eternally and we will worship him forever. But again, if we're being honest, we, we do tend to lose sight of his power. We lose sight of his permanence, we lose sight of his payment, we lose sight of his power. When we, when we can't seem to shake sin and we can't seem to, to fix things on our own and mend relationships or for all of us faithful city dwellers here in St. Louis, we can't even seek to mend plaster on our walls right? That's, that's a Jesus moment for sure. At least it's a repentance moment, at least for me. When we can't get out of a funk, we tend to believe it's because Jesus isn't power enough, powerful enough. Now, 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 you wouldn't say that, but if you dig it down deep enough, it's really what you believe. But friend, can I, can I encourage you tonight to not buy into the lies? to not buy into the lies because the truth of the matter is because we have a powerful savior, we lack nothing. We lack nothing. Even amid sin and struggle, Jesus is powerful. His word, his resurrection and his impending return remind us that there isn't anything he cannot do. He's done it all and will continue to do it all forever. So what do we do in light of Jesus' power? Real simple application tonight. Worship and obey. There's the old hymn. I don't know if you're, you're like me, but I grew up in the church. I'm a pastor's kid. Went to a lot of small country Baptist churches, Josh. And I'll never forget. It, it, I begin to use this mantra a lot in my life. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And, and really what, what trust is, is, is putting our hope and our faith in it. And, and what worship is, is, is an outward side of that trust. We don't give honor and glory to things that we don't trust. And so what do we do in light of Jesus' power? We worship and we obey. It's the example we see here in Revelation 4 and 5. We trust that Jesus is who he says he is, and we follow him by doing what he has called us to do. We look to the power of Jesus, and we recognize that he is worthy of all of our worship and all of our obedience, the easy things and the hard things. Why? It's, it's this simple, friends. Why do we do this? It's because he was the lamb who was slaughtered. It's because of who he is. It's because of what, he was do what he's done. He has defeated sin, death, and hell on our behalf. He's good. He's worthy. You see, he didn't use his powers in the way the world uses their powers. Think about that for a second. Philippians 2 tells us this, right? Jesus didn't use his power, right? 
I, I think of the movie Aladdin, you know, you know, cosmic ultimate power, you know, anybody live in space? You know, that, that, that thing, like, like, like Jesus, every ounce of Jesus' power is used for his glory, which is our good. He, he didn't use it to, 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 to spoil or, or, or to puff himself up. Jesus used his power to be put in a, in, in a position to, to be our payment. And we must recognize that. Jesus used his power to bring life, to bring forgiveness, to bring hope. And friends, this is why he deserves our worship and our obedience you know you come in here almost every other week and don't want to uncross your arms and open your mouth. But can I just convince you sweetly tonight that you should even if you don't feel like it? Why? Because Jesus deserves. He deserves our worship and he deserves our obedience. And friends, this is why we need a bigger vision of Jesus' power. To wrap it all up tonight, We've got to recognize that all of our problems have to do with our vision of Jesus. When we view Jesus as small, everything else is overwhelming. And so simply, like I told you at the beginning, we need a bigger vision of Jesus. And not just once, but every day, every moment, we need a bigger vision of Jesus. It's only with a corrected vision that we can live the lives we were made for. Live the, the life that, 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 that love, live those lives that love God with all we, we have and all we are, live lives that love our neighbors as ourselves as we share the good news of Jesus with them, live lives that are pointed outwardly and not inwardly, live lives of worship and obedience. How do we do this? We look at Jesus and we don't stop looking at Jesus and we don't stop helping others look to Jesus. So the answer today and always is really that simple, friends. Let's look to Jesus. Pray with me.